This Guardian Family podcast is sponsored by Jump, the savings fund for children. To find out more, visit jumpsavings.com. Hi, this is Miranda Sawyer and this is the family podcast from The Guardian, the show that grabs you by the face, spits on a hanky and rubs jam off your chops. Coming up, the demon dog of crime literature, James Elroy, on how his mother's murder affected his relationships with women. And when it's not mummy and daddy, but mummy and mummy, how same-sex couples cope with having a baby. I found myself stumbling over my words at the very beginning, going, we've just had a baby. I didn't have the baby, but, but you know, I'm, I'm the other mother. And, uh, but we know the dad, we know the dad. The clash between teenagers and their parents over technology. My dad would just slip in a casual comment about, oh, have you got the latest, like, Facebook for Blackberry? And so I think it sort of gives them a sense of daddy cool. And the original daddy cool, Suggs from Madness, dances on the kitchen table in his family playlist. This is the family podcast from The Guardian. And joining me in the pod this month are The Guardian's John Henley. Hello. Hello. And writer and performer Rachel Mars. Welcome. Thank Welcome you. to our salubrious pod. <laughs> it is salubrious. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about technology later, technology in teenagers, but I just wondered, just as a base level, how techy you are, Rachel? Oh, I'm a Luddite. <laughs> I'm, I like paper and pen. Paper and, and pen, I you know, say. old school. Um, I have got a Facebook account. And but, do you use it? Well, um, not enough not to miss a lot of birthdays, which I've only been invited to by Facebook. And then yeah. people get very upset. Cause, but then I say I didn't get a paper invitation through the post. Yeah. So, so you're old school. I'm quite old school. What about you, John? Yeah, I'm fairly, I'm regrettably, pretty much the same. Actually, our family is a bit weird because I'm, I'm, I'm quite frankly way too old to be tweeting and, and, and you know poking and friending and all this kind of stuff. And my kids are, um, well, the oldest will be ten next month, so they're on a kind of quite interesting. They're clearly up for it, and and they're into this. There are a couple of kind of what you might call Facebooks for preteens out there. Is it like you know, is it Bebo? Or yeah, but no, no. There's this thing called called Moshi monsters or something oh, right. and there's also a thing called club penguin which i was quite keen on until i discovered it was disney sadly but they're they're quite you you kind of basically you become a character and and you can kind of wander around this universe and and bump yeah. into people and make friends with them and it's all very carefully controlled yeah. they're clearly absolutely desperate to do it The film The Kids Are All Right has turned gay families into popcorn sellers with its mainstream sensibility and high-profile actors Annette Bening and Julianne Moore. But what's the reality of two mums bringing up children? Rachel, you've gone out for us to find some answers. Why were you so interested in doing the piece for the family podcast? Um, I turned 30 this year and kind of, I suppose, true to a kind of biological tedium, I I started actually thinking about having children. I think I'd always thought about having children. Um, And then about four years ago, I realised I was gay and I thought, oh God, I was... I can try really hard, but it's not going to happen accidentally, no matter how hard. <laughs> no matter how drunk you get. <laughs> how, how drunk you get, how hard. I'm trying really hard, but yet again, there's something I'm not doing. Um, so I, I just sort of went in search of some advice, really, and I wanted to go and see what the options were. Okay. And because there's quite a lot of things to consider, like the, should there be a dad involves, I've got a, I'm in a partnership, so there's two of us, should we add another one? Um, and who, when you've got two women, obviously there's the option for both of you 
to get pregnant. So which one of us should be pregnant? How do you choose who should get pregnant? Um, Do you try and do... My partner suggested we both get pregnant at the same time. Oh, (laughs) that's a heavy duty choice. (laughs) I thought that was insane. Um, So I spoke to a few people, including some really good friends of mine who are actually the only two gay mums I know, uh, Flick and Neela. And um, I asked Neela which one of them had uh, wanted to get pregnant. I think at the beginning we both wanted to. I I think I wanted to a little bit more than Flick, but because Aruna was born very quickly and she was almost born on the bathroom floor with Flick delivering, because she had such an immediate experience of birth, she then decided that maybe I should have the second one as well. <laughs> I'm sort of also thinking about when I do it, whether... Um, I will have a sort of an anonymous um, sperm donation or whether I'll choose someone I know to kind of come into the, the fold with me and my partner. So I'm just interested in what you did and, and why maybe. I think we both felt like we wanted um, our children to have their dad involved and have that person be dad. Um, and we would have definitely gone down the anonymous donor route if that was the only option. But we were fortunate enough really to find one of Flick's friends who was happy. To join us. It was purely by chance that my partner happened to bump into um, our donor on the train one day. When she told me about bumping into him, I was like, ah, I remember. I had a conversation with him years ago, so let's approach him. We had had friends who had had quite good success rates with um, artificial insemination at home using fresh rather than frozen and... Um, I suppose we decided if we were lucky enough to, A, know someone and that they were happy to go through the process of, you know, health screening and, you know, also happy to kind of work, you know, a monthly visit into their schedule, that we should give it a try naturally. What do your children call you if you got two mums? What are the options? When Aruna was first born, we'd refer to each other as Mummy Neela or Mummy Flick. Um, and consequently that first nursery refers to us in the same way but Aruna has decided to call us mummy and mama and she's she's made that she's created those names herself really so that's what we've gone with as the non-biological mother it's just it's plain old strange (laughs) most of the time and I found myself sort of stumbling over my words at the very beginning you know going I've, we've just had a baby. I didn't have the baby, but but you know, I'm I'm the other mother, and uh, but we know the dad. We know the dad, and um, you know, so just sort of quickly describing my family in a way that I don't think straight couples have to consider. Were there any moments where you knew that you had made it? I mean, the most recent time where she's been starting to write um, our eldest one. And I came home to a piece of paper on the table and a plate with a biscuit on it. I was called upstairs and said, have you seen a piece of paper? Have you seen a piece of paper? Have you seen what it says? And basically, Aruna had written her first word and her first word that she'd written was Mama. And I was like, come on, that's me. That's me. She wrote my name first. Not Mum, Mama. (laughs) That makes me laugh because every child, the first word they say is never Mum, it's always Daddy. (laughs) So it makes no difference. Yeah, exactly. It's not mum, it's mama. And I do like the, uh, the comments from the baby during yeah. that feature. It's very very insightful. Comment. Very yeah. insightful. Yeah, yeah. My kind of comments. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to undermine you from this point forward for your whole life. 
Um, so you also spoke to a, a dad too, didn't you? Why was that? Yeah, I just really wanted to go in search of a kind of dad's point of view because I was thinking what a dad's role would be in any of any kind of family I had, really. So um, I met up with a great chap called David, who's part of. He's got quite a complicated family network, um, but I think I'll let him explain it. It's quite complicated, actually. There's um, my friend Sarah, who I met 20-odd years ago, 25 years ago, and her partner Lynn, who I introduced 20 years ago. And we have a 13-year-old, who Sarah's the mum of, and also we have a 7-year-old, Ruby, who is um, the daughter of the, the birth daughter of Lynn. And uh, Peter is um, Ruby's dad. And then we also have a, a Jamaican foster son, who's 17, who we're sort of helping into the world as well. The two mums, do they live close by? So what's your involvement? How often do you see them? They live about a mile from me and uh, have done for all of Toby's life. So I kind of... Um, we, some people say, what's your system? Do you have a system? And well, I don't really have a system, which maybe some t- people criticise sometimes, but I try to just be around the family as much as I can in normal situations. You know, breakfast, I might call in late at night or early in the morning or I stay, you stay over or we, and we spend a lot of time. We go away on holiday together. I'm, I'm at school assemblies and I do go to school plays and, you know, family events. And I just also wanted to ask you, when you were doing it, how did your family react to it? I come from a very working class, northern background. My dad was a builder, you know, and uh, me being gay wasn't that good for them. But when I turned around and said, we're going to have a child, they were very excited almost immediately, which was incredible. And they suddenly took on the job, you know, became Toby's grandparents very excitedly. I've been sort of doing my reading about in kind of various handbooks to gay and lesbian families. And a lot of them sort of talk about preparing for potential homophobia. Um, is that something that you considered or have experienced in, in this kind of, in your family? Well, obviously, um, it's, it's been a worry. It is a worry. I, I think our main um, ammunition with, with our children is just honesty, and they, there's nothing they don't know. There's nobody, nothing somebody else is going to tell them about their lives that they don't know. There was one moment, actually, when I was... Uh, my, my son was in the park, a uh, local park, playing, and... Um, you know, mothers are always there with their babies, and he, he was when he was older, and um, they, they kind of were questioning the family set up without trying to be polite. And he said, oh, no, no, he's a puff. And the woman was absolutely flawed and sort of pushed her, pushed her away and couldn't quite cope with um, a, a teenager being quite so honest and just up front, which was, which was amazing, you know, amazing for him to be able to do that. That was fantastic, I have to say. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, what about your own family? One of the things I was interested in, in what David just had to say was how... Um, his parents became really excited about the fact that he's become, he was he's, he himself has become yeah. a parent, and they are then grandparents. And yeah. I think that's possibly true of all kind of grandparents. They don't really care as long as you they have grandchildren. They do not care how it happens. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what about your own family? Have you discussed it with yeah, your mum? I hadn't really gone into it with her before um, this past week, but I actually went to have a, a chat with her about it. I've come to talk to you because we've never really had a chat about how you feel about me being uh, in a same-sex relationship, having a family in that relationship. Well, I think it would be the same as if you were with uh, a a male friend. For me, there would be no difference at all. I'd still... The children would be exactly the same. They'd be my grandchildren. And I would just play with them in exactly the same way and have great fun and play with the doll's house and generally play. So that wouldn't um, alter how I I interacted with the children at all. But I am still, I suppose, rather old-fashioned in my views and feel that 
it would be nice to have a father or a father figure there as well. So that would be my concern um, if there weren't one, if it were just two women. However loving the relationship is, um, my other concern would be for slightly later in life when the children are at school and whether they would be perhaps bullied or made fun of because they were being brought up by two mummies and no daddy. So you've uh, you've you've kind of <laughs> gathered all the information. Did you yeah. did it help you? Did you yeah it, make you sure on it, your path? Yeah, it definitely helped me. Actually, it gave me quite a lot of kind of confidence that there are a myriad of different options and um, lots of different kind of family conurbations, and that. Um, I think it's about making a decision and then just keep it making more and more decisions <laughs> as you go along. Um, but no, it made me a lot. It really made me quite confident about um, doing it or at yeah. least trying. Embrace and commit. <laughs> That's what I've learned in my adult life. Embrace and then see what happens and then commit to it. Oh. <laughs> commit after. Yeah, well, yeah, I find commitment quite hard, so just embrace it first. <laughs> <laughs> but what I was going to um, say, do you think, so have you made any definite decisions as to say, for instance, who would be the biological mum or... Yeah, well, I mean, I'm kind of chatting about this with my partner at the moment. Um, and I think I'm more certain that I quite like to have a bash first. Mm. Um, and then maybe she would afterwards. Um, but I'm quite vain, you see. And I had a friend stay with me recently who's exceptionally pregnant and telling me all about the changes going on with her body. So part of me was thinking, well, if I'm going to get kind of quite fat and pregnant and you, partner, are going to continue to be gorgeously aesthetic and kind of six-packy that's gonna really annoy me there is a kind of i'm hoping a beauty to it yes (laughs) well this was this was what she pointed out don't you think i might be a bit jealous that you're you know growing something there's also the attention that you get a you know a lot of attention which is quite nice you do feel a bit that's dad certainly i i mean i you do feel a little bit on the outside yeah Yeah. actually the lady flick talks about um who's the non-my mum she talked about this um she's called it primal inadequacy which is what she felt for the first year which is that she should know what she was doing and she had no absolutely no idea um i suppose it's always about the chats beforehand but really the the chats beforehand seem to you know i really have to start thinking now because the talking is going to take three years (laughs) before we even begin looking for fresh or frozen yeah and that one i definitely have to be fresh so yeah well Well, unless you defrost it like you know in the microwave i've got no idea (laughs) <laughs> and for how long? Yes. <laughs> when do you want it to go? Bing! <laughs> this podcast is proud to look past the conventional definition of the word family, but even we had trouble calling ace crime writer James Elroy a family man. But as we heart him so much, we invited him to explore how his adult approach to women has been affected by his relationship with his mother, who was murdered when he was 10 years old. I was born in Los Angeles in 1948. My parents divorced when I was seven years old. My mother's name was Jean Hilliker. The title, The Hilliker Curse, derives thusly. On the occasion of my 10th birthday in March of 1958, My mother, a 43-year-old alcoholic registered nurse divorced for two and a half years from my father, offered me the opportunity to live with my dad or live with her. I said, my dad. She hit me. I fell off the couch, gouged my head on a glass coffee table, called her some bad names. She hit me again. She pulled back from it all. 
Christmas 57, when I was nine, I read a boy's book on witchcraft spells and curses. And I issued the Hilliker curse and summoned my mother dead. She was coincidentally murdered three months later. I like the use of the word coincidentally, because you must have thought that you brought it on. I did think that I had brought it on. I must say that this is a memoir about women in me and my obsessive desire for women and my obsessive desire finally realized to find the woman. Thus it is suitable for a family podcast. But my Lord, what a journey. In the, the Hedekah Curse, in the mem- it's essentially a memoir of women, isn't it? Your life through women. Um, you, at certain points, definitely come across as an obsessive and a fantasist about women. Would you agree? I have always been looking for imagery. I have always been looking for a face. A face with a moral sense. A face that bespeaks probity. A handsome woman rather than a pretty or a traditionally beautiful woman. I've always thought that if a woman possessed certain features, that she would be the one. There's a highly satirical, hilarious part of the Hilliker curse that occurs shortly after I moved to New York, where in the course of one hour, I see three women who have to be her. And I make pursuits of all three, all three, dare I say, unsuccessful. So there is more than a little bit of satire and satire of maleness in the Hilliker curse. But as I say at the beginning of, I said at the beginning of our interview, and as I will tell you now, I finally met the woman and later in life, and I'm very happy. So how would you describe your um, notion of family now, then, having been through what you've been through? I've never had a family. I'm an only child. My father was an only child. My mother, who was murdered young, had a sister who died 15 years ago. And so I've never really had a family. The woman I'm with now, the happy ending, Erica Schickel, has two daughters. I have long wanted daughters or a daughter. I've spent the and it's a desire that came to me later in life. I've spent the past five years traveling around the world trying to wed, impregnate, and contain inappropriate women. It didn't work. I had an affair with a woman who had two daughters. That didn't work. And I finally met and fell in love with a woman who has two daughters who largely ignore me. But they throw me the occasional crumbs of affection, which make me very grateful. I push no I'm their dad agenda on them. I work for some cheap laughs with them. I'm rewarded with a few offhand yucks. I talk to their cat, which seems to amuse them. And they reward me with the occasional smile, which is 
all, I think, any adult male faced with the presence of teenage daughters can hope for. <laughs> and if I'm not with Erica Schickel, driving to Erica Schickel's pad, or driving back from Erica Schickel's pad, and we don't stay together on the nights that she has, the girls, now that she's divorced from her husband, which is dandy with me because they make a lot of noise. And I don't, if I'm not making my own noise, I prefer no noise, unless it's Beethoven. And it's a wonderful, wonderful system. And the way Erica and I often describe it is, we have a love so deep that even we can't fuck it up. <laughs> um, do you think that your attitude towards women at the beginning of your at the beginning of the Hillica curse, so kind of post your mum and all this, when you were intimidated by you were a young man, intimidated by young uh, by young women's looks, not knowing how to approach them, too intense, too awkward. Do you think that that carried on into your adult life or you managed to shake it off? What's interesting about the chronology of the Hilliker curse is that the most significant women appeared in my life when I was in my 50s. I was ready for them then. I became more discerning. I had that notion of having the daughter Retrospectively, I'm glad I didn't. I think the basic noise factor in and of itself would have driven me crazy. I sleep poorly as it is. Do not mess with my sleep. I'm an animal in its den. And I noticed, by the way, I get a lot of hunting catalogs because I like tradi I like the look, yes, more than I like to hunt. But now they have a, a bed for dogs who like to sleep in packs so dogs can get nice and warm together and sleep together in packs. And that's my idea, outside of your know, life with Erica Schickel, of course, would be for Erica Schickel and I to be in one of those dog beds with a pack of British hounds. <laughs> that would be your ideal fantasy these days. Yes, yes. <laughs> And that was a fantastic James Elroy talking to me about his memoir, The Hillica Curse, My Pursuit of Women. Now, children are hardwired to find their parents irritating, but there is nothing more galling for a teenager than a parent who steps on their territory. These days, young people not only have to cope with a mum who sings along to Tiny Temper, but a dad who wants to chat to them on Twitter. Does modern technology bring families closer together, or should teenagers always block their parents from their Facebook account? I'm Rivka, I'm 18, and what really annoys me is when my parents attempt to be cool via technology. Um, so recently I discovered that my mum had Facebook, not because she told me, but because she added me. They do try to use it as a means of sort of getting in with my friends, I find. So they'll be over and my dad will just slip in a casual comment about, oh, have you got the latest, like, Facebook for Blackberry? And so it's sort of a fusion of these two things that's so irritating me and it's, 
it, it gets a bit sort of uh, intense. I think it sort of gives them a sense of daddy cool, which I'm I'm not too happy with. <laughs> my name is Amos and I'm 18. I probably would call myself a computer nerd. When I'm around the house, when I have my laptop, I'm always on the internet, I'm almost permanently on Facebook. My parents, I'd say, were fairly technophobic. They only use the technology when it's actually necessary for them to use it. They, my, my dad has a mobile phone that sits in his desk drawer and that's about it, about 11 months of the year. They, uh, they sort of ask me or my brothers to be the technology for them so that they don't have to learn. I'm Nia, I'm 18 and um, I grew up in a family that was obsessed by technology, not even in a fake way, in a, in a truly computer nerdy way. And so now it's, uh, have you updated your virus software? No, I haven't. And I've been told off for doing that. The other thing is that there, there are certain bits of technology that are associated with you. So I personally, I think it's only embarrassing when they get involved with things like Facebook and other social networking sites because those are places where young people belong. They're our domain. And adults should stick to what my parents are up to, which is pottering around with the internet, um, watching their old favourite TV shows from when they were younger. Um, it's only when they um, get involved with my use of technology that I really get annoyed. <laughs> so the conclusion we can draw is that all parents annoy their teenagers. That's about it. <laughs> but John, you wrote a long piece of the Guardian on teenagers and technology, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, what did you discover? Well, what I discovered. Well, firstly, what I discovered was that, that you know, I guess what everybody knew already, which is that a completely staggering usage of, of, of particularly of, well, mobile phones and of social networking sites like Facebook by teenagers. I mean, these are the figures from America, but they're generally accepted to be pretty much similar here. Uh, I mean, 75% of teens, including 60% of 12-year-olds, now have mobile phones. Um, 80% of them take pictures of them, 64% on them, 64% uh, share those pictures. Um, half of those who have mobile phones send at least 50 text messages a day. And a, third, a day? Yeah, and a third of them send 100 text messages, which is why you see all these contracts, all these gobsmacking uh, 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 mobile phone contracts when you're walking down the high street that offer unlimited free texts. They're all aimed at teenagers. They're sending 100 or more texts a day. It's quite extraordinary. Recently I did a, a, a radio piece and it was about um, kids and sexuality and how uh, Facebook and, and uh, mobile phone uh, photographs can be used against you so you can you know people uh, kids video each other having sex and then send it around to the whole of the school awful things like that mm-hmm. and one of the things that the schools do is recommend to parents that they become kind of a bit more au fait with technology and they go on Facebook and they they follow their their mm-hmm. kids but the awful thing is that you do that and then of course your kids just think oh god <laughs> <laughs> Go away, and you're trying to kind of protect them in this awful way, and they just think, no, no, go away. It's like you're, it's like you're following them down the road in the car or something. It's just, it's just appalling. It's very true. It's very true. I mean, I completely get what the what the kids that you interviewed were, you know, were, were talking about. The, 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 this idea of having your parents suddenly, you know. Because it cuts both ways, doesn't it? You know, yeah. you know that you're you, you're enjoying the the wonders of this new technology as a teenager, and and you know, and and. It basically, it's made t- new technology has made being a teenager an awful lot easier than it was. But it's also made being a teenager, or it's be, been made, made an awful lot easier for teenagers' parents yeah. uh, you to, know, come to, in. to stick their nose in. Yeah. It's just that I suppose it's like having your mum show up at a party. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. and I'd be, you know, I mean, personally, I know what I'm like. I'd have no qualms. <laughs> I'll be turning up, no problem with me. But, uh, yeah, I imagine it will completely drive them mad. Yeah. What about um, your parents? Are they kind of up on technology? Or? No, not at all. My mum has her mobile phone and then she has a paper 
um, kind of address book that she's stuck on the back <laughs> of a mobile phone because she hasn't. I don't think she's worked out that there's there's a phone book in the phone. Um, so no, she's they're they're both quite old school actually. My grandma is she's understanding the internet now, which is quite good. But she um, we had to explain sat nav to her recently. She's ninety four, um, and so we were driving along and there's the the little woman telling us where to go, and she said, "This woman can she actually see us?" <laughs> um, way she can see that's us. that's really that's a kind of like a five-year-old it's question, precise, yeah. i was gonna exactly. say it's precisely the question my seven-year-old was where is this woman <laughs> a singer of madness suggs is a national treasure the original nutty boy who's been bringing joy to the pop charts for over 20 years Brought up by a single mum in Camden, he now has a family of his own, as well as the dysfunctional one that is his band. Here's his family playlist. My first track is um, Summertime by Billie Holiday. Um, It's a song my mum still does sing on occasions, after a couple of cold drinks. And it's a song I remember very early um, in my childhood, my mum playing late at night. Playing on what? On a gramophone player. I thought you meant she like got, got out a piano and played oh, it. No, 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 ukulele playing on the ukulele and washboard. <laughs> summertime. No, it's a song that I remember very clearly. My mum playing on her um, record player. Um, you know, songs you remember really early in your life, and that's definitely one of the earliest. Summertime, and the cotton is high Oh, your daddy's rich And your ma is good looking So hush, little baby Don't you cry And what kind of emotions does it does it bring to you now, then? Um, not always the happiest, no, because... Um, my mum could get a bit melancholy, and I suppose that you know that music was melancholy. So I suppose more like you know someone who worked quite hard and was um, a bit tired, and uh, yeah, and I just think you know I don't know a certain sort of sentimentality. I suppose it reminds me of I mean, not not sadness as such, but definitely not happiness either. <laughs> <laughs> so you, when you think of it, you think you think of singing slightly weeping into your gin and dubonnet. I, t- I should say there's a touch of the uh, weeping into the um, gin and. Um, Dubonnet, yes, definitely. And did you, was there a lot of music in your house when you were young? And my mum's a big jazz fan, yeah, so mostly jazz. I mean, it was that, and the Sketches of Spain by um, Miles Davis. Um, again, a very, very sad <laughs> refrain. You didn't have uh, any of those things that, uh, that uh, a lot of uh, people that I know have, where you have the family sitting around and everyone has to sing one song each. You didn't have that, did you? Um, no, not, not in, what, when, I, when I was a kid. Yeah. No, not when I was a kid. No, 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 because it was only me and my mum. It wouldn't have taken very long. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we never took it in turns, mostly together. But um, no, singing's always been a big part of my life, you know, and I've obviously I've made a career out of it, and my mum was a, was a good singer, still is. And I married someone who's a singer, my kids sing, and so we've always had singing around the house. What would you sing? Well, one of the favourites around my house is um, Ready for Love by Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. A really fantastic song.
has such a powerful effect, it tends to ensure that everyone in the house, no matter who they may be, ends up standing on the kitchen table. I remember I had a couple of American film producers around once. They really were completely bemused by the whole situation. But there's something about a rocking, swaying oak kitchen table that gives you the feeling you're on the high seas. nothing better than singing and dancing on a table but then it gets to the um, competition see who can get the highest in the room then people start trying to clamber up the Welsh dresser eventually someone's hanging off the lampshade it must be this natural craving to be on stage that I've been cursed with my entire life if I see a stage I do have to be on it and what about your kids are they the same yeah they are actually yeah because another time actually it was a ha- they were having a Halloween party in our house and we'd been out for dinner or some, some other boring thing so I just had a suit and I thought yeah I know, I'll get some broad cream and I broad cream my hair and got some black eyeliner I made myself look vaguely like someone from the Munsters my daughters were in their late teens then and they were terrified well, well their friends were terrified when they heard the front door open of course within a matter of minutes we were all on the kitchen table and <laughs> which song were you singing then? Ready for Love by Martha Reeves <laughs> and the Vantellas and what about another track so we've got two so far can you think of another one? Another family track. Um, well, just uh, because it's a great song and because you just mentioned the word family, Family Affair by, by, by Sly Stone is a really terrific song and that's one that um, crops up on occasions in the family. Um, such a simple but fabulous song and it is a family affair a lot of the time, isn't it? They just love to learn and another child grows up to be somebody you just love to burn. What I think about that song also is that he's saying it's a family affair, but what he's singing about is his band, isn't he? So do you feel like that? Is your band your other family? I, I do indeed, yes, yes. A rather dysfunctional um, yeah, mirror image. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, we've been together for 30 years now, and uh, we have all the ups and downs of family life, for sure. Who's the mummy? Um, <laughs> that sort of psychological detail is a bit too scary. I think we all sort of take turns in the p- patriarchal and matriarchal roles. But it's more like, you know, one person's having a struggle at some time and then, and then it's, we, we take turns to kind of be really fed up with everybody else in the band and leave home for a bit. <laughs> but only get as far as the end of the street as all good leaving homes should. And Madness are playing at Earl's Court on the 17th of December. So, Suggs, John, I'm presuming that Madness had some effect on your life. Madness was my the dance band of... Oh, God, yes! The number <laughs> of... Say also, what's really brilliant about Madness is you play them to any child, like any child of kind of like three onwards, and they just go, "This is brilliant! Yeah, yeah. This is the best music ever! Exactly. One step beyond! It's yeah, for me!" Exactly. <laughs> and you could, it doesn't matter if you're three; you'd still dance in the same way to Madness, yes, whether exactly. you're three or you're nine. Exactly. So you thought like you're punching the air, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're punching Jumping. the air, and, and then running on the yeah. spot. That's about it, really. Isn't it? It's fantastic. Well, that's all for this month's family podcast. My thanks to my guests John Henley, Rachel Mars, the lovely James Elroy, and Suggs. Don't forget to read the Guardian's family section for more clambering up the dresser of family life. From me, Miranda Sawyer, and my producer, Sarah Peters, goodbye. 
In today's instalment of the Children's Guide to Bringing Up Parents, brought to you by JUMP, the Savings Fund for Children, we're looking at learning to plan for the future. What's this about, Alexander? Well, Becky, on the whole, parents are rubbish at this. They just live in the present, failing to realise that if my sports kit isn't washed by Wednesday morning, it's bound to be a crisis. The same with my sparkly top on Saturday evenings. How do you help them develop their skills? Help them understand that planning ahead is in their interest too. Take JUMP, the savings fund for children. Put a little money into it regularly over the years and then, later on, when there are big bills to pay for first cars, first flats, going to uni... We'll still be able to cash in our savings and spend it all on clothes. You'll never sell it to them like that, Bex. Find out more about JUMP, the savings fund for children, at www.jumpsavings.com. As JUMP is an equity investment in Witten Investment Trust PLC, please remember that past performance is not a guide to future performance, and the value of your shares and the income from them can rise and fall, so you may not get back the amount originally invested. Issued and approved by Witten Investment Services Limited, registered in England number 5272533 of 201 Bishopsgate, London, EC2M3AE. Witten Investment Services Limited provides investment products and services and is authorised and regulated by the Financial Services Authority. Calls may be recorded for our mutual protection and to improve customer service.